Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, let's get into the word this morning. I want to want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I had some people ask me if I'm still the pastor here. Uh, I was, out of the last four weeks, I was gone three. Uh, last week I was with Armando and Irma and Jesus and Elizabeth at their church in Kiwani. Uh, it's called Kehop, Kiwani House of Prayer. And uh, God is doing some wonderful things there. Uh, they are a sister work of our church here. And uh, it's just, it was a joy to be with them. Armando and Irma were elders here for a number of years and went, went back there to help their kids, Jesus and Elizabeth, with their work there in Kiwani. And, and uh, they're touching that city and they're partnering with other churches. And uh, it was just so good to be with them and, and to worship with them. They, uh, they purchased a building there on Main Street and uh, someone scratched out a check, paid the whole thing off. And uh, so now they are debt free and, and uh, doing church out of there. And, uh, they, they send their greetings. Okay, so uh, I love to preach at Christmas time. And uh, man, we just have a few weeks left, so I'm, I'm getting in late. So I'll be done about 2 o'clock because I've got several messages, I'm just kidding, uh, to squeeze in here. Uh, but I want to look at the Christmas story. Uh, this story is so rich and holds so much for us. And we're going to jump in at Luke 2, verse 8. Uh, I cannot read this passage without seeing little Linus with his blankie uh, on the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I hear his voice in my head. I know that's probably not real spiritual, but hey, that's what I hear. Let's look at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round, around them. And they were terrified, I imagine. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Let me say it again. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. If the news they brought doesn't cause joy, it's because you don't understand it. It is good news and it causes great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. What a story. And so this is one of the famous, famous elements of the Christmas story. And uh, we want to look at this. This 
the Christmas story really is a template for how God moves. And it's important that we understand that God operates in patterns, okay? So God is mysterious. Let, let me put it this way. One of, one of the amazing things about God is what theologians call the tension of his transcendence and his eminence. His transcendence means he is far above, beyond. God is unknowable except that he is self-revealing, okay? His ways are so much higher than our ways, there is no way we can comprehend him had he not self-revealed himself to us. So God is transcendent, but he's also eminent, means he's right amongst us. He's, he's ever-present. He is available. It's when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, that was really a reference in one sense to his eminence. It's, it's the same root word as Emmanuel, the eminence of God, God with us, that he is right here amongst us. And so he's so far beyond us, but he's right here with us, and we live in the tension of that reality. And we need to realize that because God's his transcendence makes us, there's a fear and an awe and a sense of, of uh, respect that we have for God, but his eminence invites us into relationship with him. And we need to uh, maintain that balance in our own theology and our own minds. But God is self-revealing. He's given us a book, and in that book he has revealed himself. So much so that Jesus would talk about things like the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Jesus longs to reveal himself to us. And that's important for us to understand. That God is self-revealing. He longs to be, he longs to share his heart with man. There is revelation that is available to us as believers. Paul taught us to pray in Ephesians chapter 1 that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would come upon us in the knowledge of him. And that's a good prayer for us to pray. It's a scriptural prayer and it's an essential prayer because the only way to know him is if he reveals himself to us. And the fact is God is looking for a hungry heart to reveal himself to. Now, there was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, among other things, prided itself in secret knowledge. And it, those, the Gnostics looked at themselves as the special people that had understanding and secret wisdom that others didn't have. And that was a heresy. It was a, a wrong belief system that the writers of the New Testament went after with good doctrine. But even though that's a heresy, there is a reality to God giving revelation to some that he doesn't give to others. Do you understand that? And it's not that the others are special or more spiritual or necessarily even less sinful. Now, just, just bear out with me here. There is revelation that God gives, but he gives it to the hungry heart. In Matthew 13, there's this, this parable that Jesus tells about the soils. And he said there's four types of human heart. There's the, the, uh, the, the, sto uh, the trodden path, the stony ground hearer, the thorny ground hearer, and then there's the good soil that receives the seed and brings forth fruit. 
We don't have time to get into that, but that is a, uh, Jesus says of that parable, he says, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the others? So that parable holds keys to unlocking all the others because that parable gives us insight into the type of heart that God reveals himself to. Now, if you read that parable in Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable to the crowds, and you've got you've to compare it, Matthew 13, to, I want to say it's Luke 8 and Mark 4, because in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he tells this same parable. And only when you lay all three of them beside each other do you get the full picture of what was really going on there. Because there's certain things that one will have mentioned, the other one won't. And when you lay them all side together, then you get the big picture. And it's interesting, it's fascinating to me that when Jesus says to the disciples, they said, Jesus, why do you speak in parables and what does this mean? And now I'm, I'm pulling from a couple of them here. They said, Lord, what does this mean and why do you speak in parables? Jesus said this. He said, I speak in parables so that they would be hearing but never hear, seeing but never see. He's saying the whole reason I teach in parables is so that even though they're listening, they're not going to grasp what I said. Now that's troubling. He's saying the reason I teach that way is to conceal truth. Which is even more intriguing when you find out that the word parable in and of itself literally means, it's a compound word which means to throw alongside. And the whole idea is that you take the spiritual realm, which we don't understand because, as we said, Isaiah said, his ways are higher than our ways. You take something physical like farming in that case or a, a myriad of other things that Jesus taught on, natural things we do understand. And he said the kingdom of heaven, which we don't understand, is like a farmer, which you do understand. And if you look through the lens of the farmer, you can get insight into the kingdom. And so the very idea is that you'd throw the physical alongside the spiritual to reveal things of the kingdom. And then Jesus says, I use this revelatory way of teaching not to reveal but to conceal. Now, do I got you confused enough? <laughs> and so what Jesus was saying, I teach in such a way to hide these valuable truths from people who won't value them themselves. I will not throw my pearls before swine, Jesus said. Now, he wasn't trying to be insulting by calling people pigs. What he was saying is that a pig will, will step over jams to get to a half-eaten, half half-rotted corn cob because that's more valuable to his, valuable, his value system than the gem. And so Jesus is looking to reveal to those who will value the revelation. So the disciples, because I've heard people preach out of that passage, they'll say, well, see, Jesus cho chose some and rejected others arbitrarily. It's the sovereignty of God that just said some are chosen and some are not. But if you look all three of them side by side, you find out that is not the case because what he said to the disciples, he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you, but it's the same disciples that said, what in the world were you talking about? So when they say that, 
They were as clueless as the rest of the crowd. Nobody understood what Jesus was saying when he taught it. But the ones, the knowledge of the secret to the king, of the kingdom were given to who? To those who stuck around afterwards and said, Jesus, what did this mean? We can't hang around you, hear you teach, and leave clueless. Your words are too valuable. If we have to stay here all day, we will sit at your feet and ask questions, but we need to understand what you mean. And Jesus said to them, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. And then he unloads them. There is revelation that God wants to give us. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. That phrase in and of itself is full of revelation. It's knowledge. There's things you can know about God. Don't let anybody tell you that God is unknowable. He is the self-revelating, I just made that word up, self-revelating God. He reveals himself. He longs to reveal himself to man, to the heart that will value the revelation. And there are secrets. Yes, Gnosticism is a heresy. It's wrong doctrine. But there's a reason that it got traction because there are secrets in the kingdom. That God doesn't just give to anyone. He only gives it to those who are hungry enough to understand. And in fact, I'll tell you that the pathway to revelation is asking questions. Getting in God's face and asking and asking and asking. You ask, you seek, and you knock. There is a progression of effort revealed in that little, that ask, seek, and knock. Asking takes much less effort than seeking. Asking, you just put in your request, and there's a level of revelation God gives to those who ask. James tells us about that. He said, anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God will give you liberally, and he'll upbraid it not. He's not going to get on your case. He's, he's going to give it to you. So if you ask, you'll receive but then there's a level of revelation where there's a seek and you shall find. Proverbs chapter 2 talks about that kind. It says, seek for wisdom. Cry out for understanding. And God will give it to you. So there's, there's a level of revelation that God only gives to those who will continue to ask. That is a more valuable insight than just the asking you shall receive. There is a process to that. We've got to engage our heart and keep on. Literally the Greek is ask and keep on asking. Because what happens is that God will plant in your heart a question, a hunger, and if you will stay in the pocket and keep on asking, your, the process of asking will actually do a work inside of you, develop a value system that qualifies you to steward the very thing you're asking for. If God were to give it to you right at the beginning, you wouldn't steward it well. So he draws you in and awakens hunger within your heart. But then there's knock and the door shall be opened to you. Ephesians chapter 3 talks about the unsearchable or untraceable wisdom hidden within God himself. Literally in the Greek it means there's no tracks. 
If you walk by it, you'd never see it unless God reveals it. And it says that wisdom is hidden within God himself. Now, let me just throw out a kind of uncomfortable subject here for a moment. There is such a thing as forbidden wisdom and hidden wisdom. And much of the wisdom, there's, there's, the occult is accessing spiritual wisdom outside the will of God. God will withhold truth from you until you are mature enough to handle it. There are certain things, there, there's the knock and the door shall be open, the seeking you shall find, and God isn't giving it to us until we, are, uh, we have the character that can handle it. The occult, there is supernatural wisdom that is accessible through the occult, but it will destroy you. God is a good father. He's not going to give it to you until you can handle it. The enemy will. But there's a level of wisdom the enemy can't touch. If I was, I can't touch that. He, he can't touch. Okay, I'm not even going to try. He can't touch. It's hidden within God himself. God's heart is the vault and the enemy. It's unknowable. And that is the, the strategic wisdom of God that always overturns the enemy's strategies. And God longs to bring his children into it, but there's a qualification of our heart posture and, and a character that we must enter into. And it doesn't make you prideful, it makes you very humble. Okay? If you're proud of what you know, you're not touching it. And so God is self-revealing. Now, what does all this have to do with the Christmas story? I believe that in the Christmas story are patterns of God's behavior. We've talked about this before. It's so intriguing to me how there's this phrase, the ways of God. If we're not careful, we just brush over this terminology in Scripture and we miss what God is really saying. It says that God showed his works to Moses. Everybody, the children of Israel saw God do things. Wow, that was amazing. The, 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 you know, the, the, the Red Sea parted. They saw God do all the, you know, manna came down. Quail were blown in. They saw God's work and they were amazed. But Moses was brought in on the inside in intimacy with God. And it says God showed Moses his ways. Moses understood the what or the why behind the what. He understood the ways of God. And when you understand the ways of God, there's a, a level of intimacy that now enables you to anticipate future behavior. Let me say it again. When you know God's works, you can be amazed. But you're navigating in the dark. You're, you're not, to, you, to the people who only know God's works, God is arbitrary. We're not sure what he's going to do. It's a little bit frightening. But when you know his ways, and this is the amazing thing, that God will bring us in and reveal his ways. There are motivations and principles and even patterns of behavior that God adheres to that he longs to bring us into and reveal to us. That is an amazing thing because then we can, we can walk with him in a more mature manner. We know we can anticipate future behavior. I know my wife. I have lived with this woman 33 years. 
Notice how I hesitated. It's going to be 30, it's 33 years, a few months ago. It's, it's going to be 34. I've been with this, and I also know that that doesn't even really bother her that I get the number wrong. Some ladies that, I just know my wife. There's other things that are bothered that I don't do up here. Okay? I anticipate her ways. Because over time, there are certain things that we've never faced yet, but I already know how she's going to act or how she's going to respond. Why? Because I've walked with her through a lot of things, and based on past behavior, I can anticipate future behavior. And I'm telling you, there is a place in God where you can do the same. God longs, he's looking for hearts with whom he can confide. And that should make you enormously hungry. That should, that, there should be something that awakens within you that says, God, pick me. Whatever I have to do, I want to be one of them. I want you to confide in me. The Lord is looking to and fro throughout the earth for the hearts into whom he can confide. There is such a thing as a friend of God. A major part of prophetic ministry is being a friend of God. God says, I will do nothing without first telling my prophets, my servants the prophets. That blows my mind. That God will drop by and say, hey, I was going to do this thing, but I just wanted to drop by and let you know first. Why? Because there's a friendship with God to true prophetic ministry. You know, as in prophetic ministry, there are times God will share things with you that aren't for others. Just because it comes in your head and you know things doesn't mean you're supposed to share them. It's one thing to have prophetic revelation. It's another thing to have prophetic application and interpretation. And so we need to realize that there are times where God will share things with us, not because he wants us to blab it, just because we're his friend. Man, that just makes me jealous. I want to be a man where God will confide in me. So there are patterns of behavior that we can begin to realize that there are principles and patterns that God operates by that it, at one level, okay, we're never going to plumb the depths of the infinite God. We will be discovering things for eternity. Matter of fact, you know, some, some people say, well, I don't know, man, these worship services are long at Heartland. And, and then people say, well, wait till heaven. And then they're like, I'm not sure, you know, that's, huh. I'm telling you, when we see him for who he is, I believe what's going to happen is he's just going to say, hey, I didn't tell you about this one in the word. And he'll show something. We'll like, ah, we'll fall down for about a hundred years and just be blown away. And he'll be doing that for eternity, revealing more of himself. But it doesn't start there. You can know him here. There are things, and, and matter of fact, there's even there's even little personal ways that he'll interact with you that nobody else knows about. Those some of you I see it over you. You, you know what I'm talking about. A few years ago, Bob Hazlett was here and he was teaching on the prophetic and he said, okay, we're gonna ask the Lord to help us see other people for, from God's perspective and then you go share that with them. About a week later, my brother Christopher came to me. He said, hey, you know when Bob told us? I said, yeah. He said, God told me some things about you. Do you wanna hear it? I said, yeah. I'm gonna tell you, what he told me, what the Lord 
how the Lord sees me. There were things about me that nobody knew and seemed so insignificant to me. But the Lord highlighted it to my brother. Now, my brother knows me pretty good, but there were things he didn't know. And I can't tell you what that did. To, it melted my heart that those things mean something to the Lord. I'm thinking, Lord, I mean, there are some things that I would have said, maybe this would mean something. He didn't mention those. But just little nuances of my heart towards him. Secrets bind hearts together. And God wants to bear his heart to you. Infuse his heart to yours through the secrets the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Man, we could just close right there. God longs to reveal himself. So we need to set that up. This, we need to go into the Christmas story with that understanding. Okay, God is the self-revelating God. That's a new word. It was, it, someday you'll see it in the dictionary, and it started here, okay? <laughs> self-revelating God. Now, when we look at the Christmas story, there, this is a, 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 a portrayal of a historic event. The man, Jesus Christ, was born and placed in a manger. These are historical events. But I would propose to you there's also an allegory behind this for you and I. There are principles that we can drive. Now, allegories you got to be careful with, okay? So I'm going to lay some groundwork. I'm going I'm to help you do some Bible interpretation today. Allegories are okay. In other words, there are symbols. We can, we can look at a story and say there's, this is symbolic of this as long as there's a few things in place. Number one, as long as you understand the literal, the primary literal meaning. The primary literal meaning of this story is that there was a man, Jesus Christ, born as an infant, placed in a manger, by, born of a virgin, born under the law. This, that's the, the primary, okay, so there, this is a literal historic event, and he came to take over, okay? That's the literal meaning. As long as we understand that, number two, as long as we can draw some clear corollaries, some clear connections with the symbolism we're making, and number three, as long as we can tie that symbolism into other passages, so we know that we're making a scriptural conclusion based on this, then it's okay to have allegories. The early church fathers, some of them more than others, really loved allegories. And when I look at the Christmas story, I can't help myself. I see revival all over those passages. I see God moving and what, how God operates. And so what I'm telling you is the message of the angel had a wider interpretation, a wider application than to just the shepherds in the first century. They said to them, the, the angel said to the shepherds, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Three components to one sign. What was he saying? What do you mean by a sign? That's language used throughout scripture. It meant that if you look for these markers, then you can be sure that the very thing I'm talking about, you found it, okay? The markers of God's activity in that situation, the angels came as messengers to make an announcement. Listen, unto you has been born this day. I always, 
I always have to kind of chuckle when I read that because the angels are thinking, I didn't even know we were pregnant. But he literally says to them, unto you is born this day. Because you've got to read this passage from the angelic perspective. If you don't read the angelic announcement from the angelic perspective, you won't really understand what is being said. They say things like, glory to God in the highest, our realm, but on your realm, on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. And then it begs the questions why they even chose these angels or these shepherds. I think it was because they were so excited that this thing was finally going down. Scripture is very clear that the men of old and even the angels didn't understand. They had looked into this thing wondering, what is this all about? And it begins to unfold. And I think that these angels were just so excited that the first people they found, they just kind of blurted out to them. These angels are out there minding their own business in the dark, probably around a fire, and all of a sudden, poof, the whole sky lights up and this angel says, don't be afraid. Why? Because they were scared. And he said, unto you has been born this day in the city of David. I bring you good news of great joy. So the message was there's good news. There was the gospel that will produce joy in your heart. But the sign that they would find it was a threefold sign. There were three markers. It's going to be a baby. It's going to be lying in a manger. And it's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. And when you find those three markers, you're going to know this is what God was speaking of. And I, I don't think I'm, making, I'm violating the text by telling you that that principle extends beyond the shepherds. A number of years ago, I was reading this passage and the Lord spoke to me about how he operates by that template in our lives. And one of the things, you know, you read that and it says, this shall be a sign unto you, and it begs the question, why would they need a sign? It's not that this would be the sign so they would believe. Believe me, they were already believers. The sky lit up and there was an angelic choir singing. They were convinced but it's so that they would find the right one. The sign to the shepherds was a manger. That in and of itself is interesting because the sign to the magi was a star. Magi were astrologers. Shepherds dealt with barnyard animals. So God embedded a sign where they're already looking. In the environment that they were already in, God is always leaving signs for us. But here's the thing. Often the promise is much more extravagant and exciting than the beginning of the fulfillment. And so it's easy, if we're not careful, to overlook the beginnings of God answering the promises he gives us. We can actually overlook it and miss it. Zechariah said it this way, despise not the day of small beginnings. We've got to be so careful because often when we get a promise from God, we get the whole, the whole picture at once in an event. 
I mean, this is extravagant. Angelic choirs, all this stuff. And then when you come upon it, it's just a baby lying in a feed trough wrapped in strips of cloth. And it's easy, if we're not careful, to be disappointed when God begins to fulfill the very words that he gave us. Because when God prophesies it, he's talking about the end. And whereas the prophecy, the promise, is an event, the fulfillment is a, is a process. And when it starts, it shows up in an infant form. And if we're not careful, we're so busy looking for a full-grown Messiah, riding a horse, coming with an army, that we miss the little infant expression that is broken into time. Whenever God gives you a promise, when God gives you these extravagant downloads and you get a prophecy or you see something in the word, all that excitement, the vast majority of the time, what's going to happen is he's going to give you something in seed form that you've got to nurture and steward and grow it into the full-grown thing. Garden Gate Ranch. Brenda didn't just get this download, Scott Lee pro prophesy over her, and the next day someone handed her the deed to that house they now have. It's a beautiful place, by the way. But there was walking in faith, nurturing that seed, growing that thing until it was full grown. And it's, it's not even full grown yet. They're still building it out. But I'm telling you, it's a whole lot farther than it was. And so we've got to understand when God works, what he does, this shall be the sign unto you. Okay, you got a promise from God, this is your sign. It's going to be a baby. It's going to be laying in a manger. It's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. We pray for trees, God gives us a sack of seeds. And if we don't understand that, we throw the seeds down and keep looking for the trees. When in actuality, he gave us the answer to our prayer in seed form, in infant form, and it's going to take our cooperation to grow that thing up into what God prophesied. And we can get so discouraged because we're looking for... Uh, Mary treasured these things in her heart. You would think that she wouldn't need any promises, but she did. Why was it that Simeon and Anna came and prophesied over the little baby she was holding? I mean, there's all this activity, angelic visitation for Mary, for Zachariah, for Joseph in a dream. And that, that, doesn't, that doesn't lessen the reality. This was an angelic visitation that Joseph had in a dream. By the way, Solomon had a dream where God offered him anything he wanted. He said, I, I, wanna be, I want wisdom. And he woke up the wisest man that ever lived. That was a real deal encounter. And so there's all this supernatural activity happening. Simeon and Anna heard from God. They were walking under this prophetic burden God had revealed to them. They were prompted to go into the, the, up at the temple that day and they intercepted Jesus. They're prophesying. And it says Mary would treasure all these things. It, what it meant, the Greek there when it says she, she treasured and she hid these things in her heart, it has the idea of taking and adding it to everything she already had. 
She's keeping this prophetic journal in her heart and she's adding the new words to the old ones and she's rereading these things because she's gonna need that to remind herself because the glory of the initial visitation didn't feel so glorious on this, you know, when there's postpartum depression and the baby's messing and all those things, the sleepless nights. She's going to have to remember those things. And so it shows up whenever God gives you a promise. He reveals to you the end. But when it arrives, it's in that seed form, that infant expression. And it's going to take our nurturing, our stewardship, our believing and raising that thing into the full-grown expression that God intended. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes, what it was is strips of cloth. And they would wrap a baby, its limbs, and then wrap the baby real tight. It seems almost like that's a weird practice. They would wrap, because the belief was that the limbs, in order for the limbs to grow straight, they would wrap the limbs in cloth and then they would wrap it against the body. Kathy and I had a dear friend, a couple, I, I went to Bible school with them and uh, they got married and then ended up at Teen Challenge. We ended up with them for years and we were kind of uh, in competition to who who's going to have the biggest family. And we won, hallelujah. And, uh, but we were having babies the same time as each other. And uh, Jeff Cleeter, who's the uh, director down at Chattanooga Teen Challenge, I remember when they had their first little baby, this cute little guy named John Curtis. And he would wrap him in a blanket really tight. I mean, almost like you could go out for a pass. <laughs> You could throw it, and guys would do that, but our wives would kill us, you know. And, uh, but he would be real tight, like you. And uh, he, I said, "Why do you wrap him so tight?" He said, "Because it makes the baby feel secure. Because that baby has been in that tight little womb life, and it felt secure and warm. And a baby, if it if it's able to flail, it feels insecure initially. So if you can wrap it tight, that's the idea behind swaddling clothes. So what's the takeaway for you and I? shows up in an infant expression with very little movement. But with those that have eyes to see, we recognize, oh man, here it is. You know the context of, of Zechariah 4? when it, It's talking about the prophetic. We don't have time to get into it. But it says, despise not the day of small beginnings. And then it says that the, there's a promise about the temple being built. And it says when the plumb line is in their hand, they will rejoice at the foundation. You don't usually rejoice at the foundation. You rejoice at the completion unless you take the foundation as proof, prophetic proof that the thing will be completed. And then he says, despise not the day of small beginnings. That's the idea. That when you have eyes to see, the slightest little movement is all you need. This is God. I'm telling you, I see it, but it's just a baby. Ha, but I know, but there's life and there's a little movement and it's, it's housed in this little natural feeding trough. What they always saw all the time, but all of a sudden it took on prophetic significance. And when God promises us something, what he does is he puts little hints in the most natural mundane places that we can easily overlook unless we have eyes to see. I can't read this passage without thinking 
about this. Years ago, Jack Taylor, my spiritual father, he went to be with the Lord uh, about two years ago. But Jack was going to go out to Bethel, out in Redding, California, and honor Bill Johnson. And he said, I just, I just want to go over out there and honor him for all that he's done. And I said, hey, can I go? Because I knew if you go with Jack, you're treated like somebody, you know. So we had special seating, special parking, and we had special uh, access to all the staff. And so Jack said, yeah, let's, let's take a big group. So there was a, 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 probably about 20 of us that went out there, and it was a wonderful time. And during that time out there, Bill spent some time with us, and he said this. And when he said it, I thought, that is one of the keys to what's happened in this place. This is what he said. He had been pastoring a church of about 200 people for 17 years in Weaverville, California. The city was considerably smaller than the church he was voted in as pastor of. Bethel was running 2,000 people. They quickly grew from 2,000 to 1,000 when revival hit. But Bill was undeterred. And what happened is within the first few weeks of being there, on a Sunday night, he taught, called everybody forward, and released the spirit over everyone. And he said everybody was looking at him with deer in the headlights, just staring at him, except for one lady. She starts, <laughs> she starts crying and screaming, and she gets touched by the power of God. And Bill said, I looked over at my wife, Benny. Our eyes met, and he said, we, without saying it, we both communicated to each other, there's no stopping it now. I was so struck by that. That what most people would look at a crowd of 2,000 people and what his church had been, his church in Weaverville had been in tremendous revival for many years. He comes there and everybody just looks at him like they're bored and they're not even sure what's going on. One lady gets touched, and rather than be discouraged, he was encouraged. Why? Because of this principle. He understood when God shows up, all God needs is a little crack in the door, a little foot in the door, and there is no stopping him as long as you will water the seed of what he's doing. I'm telling you, when God gives you a promise, whether it's to have a godly family and godly generations, whether it's to plan a church, whether it's to start a business, whatever the purpose of your life is and the promise that hangs over your head in the spirit, whatever that is, it doesn't arrive as a, as a full-grown Messiah. It arrives as an infant expression and it must be cooperated with. And Mary and Joseph had to feed that baby and nurture that baby and grow it up unto the man who changed the world. And so will you. And so we need eyes to see what God is doing. Because if we're not careful, we can easily overlook what God is already doing and neglect our responsibility of growing it into what God wants. Amen? So, this shall be a sign to you. It'll be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But for those with prophetic eyes, that is the event upon which history will hinge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
Lord, we thank you for each one of these. And Lord, we all sit here this morning with our own sack of seed. Some more than others. Some with greater understanding than others. But Lord, you've given to each one of us something to steward. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes of faith. Lord, we would not be those with unbelief that bury our talent. But Lord, that we would recognize the entrustment and we'd begin to water the seed and feed the baby until it's full grown and all that you intended it to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.